So I may have asked this before, but do you want to hear a story? The fact that you're listening to this already implies that you've heard a few of mine, but this one's actually true. So when I was 16, I worked a part-time job that often had me getting home at around 11 p.m. or even later. My mom's house is a split level, the bottom of which was where my room was. Everyone else was upstairs. So I would arrive home to my little dungeon, rarely disturbing the already sleeping folk in the rest of the household. And so one cold fall night, I came home, everyone's asleep of course, and I retreated to the relative comfort of my warm and lit room. And it was actually at this age of around 16 that I was only a few years into my Stephen King journey. I think I've talked about Stephen King as being a hero and someone that I look up to in terms of writing and creation. But um, when I say the beginning of my journey, I'm not really talking about his movies because some of my earliest memories were watching the likes of The Shining, Carrie, Christine, and Cujo. But in high school, I began actually reading his stories as opposed to just watching them. So while the wind howled outside my window and the furnace surrounded my room with a kind of blanket of white noise, I curled up in my bed on this night to continue reading another King tale, which in this case was Salem's Lot. A spoiler alert, there are vampires in this book, and at one particular moment, a little boy is greeted by the bloodthirsty version of his brother floating outside of his window. Now, if this scene where the fanged brother is rapping on the window and asking to be let in was not creepy enough, at this moment I heard a similar rapping at my bedroom door. I called out to the unmistakable knock knock knock, thinking my mom had woken and come downstairs. When she didn't respond, I got up to answer the door. There was no one outside my door, let alone on the lower level at all. A quick peek upstairs showed the same to be true, with everyone still sleeping as they had been when I got home. When I returned to my room, a little confused, even after calling out to see if someone was there, I noticed something a little strange. Like a lot of people, when I walk through the door, I'll toss my keys down, and if I was wearing one, would remove my coat or jacket. For me, in my room, as a teenager, I typically hung my coat on my rolling desk chair when I came into the room. So what I noticed on this night, after getting back into my room and shutting the door, was that my coat was on the floor. Now this wouldn't have been strange if not for the fact that for some reason the coat was in front of the chair. You said it's an office chair, Chris, so how is that weird if the chair can spin around? Well, okay, I'm glad you asked because I can't really show you, but I can try and explain to you why this was weird. Of course, it could slide off the back of the chair onto the ground. That makes perfect sense. But in this case, the way it fell on the ground didn't match how it should have landed if it had just fallen. The coat was on the ground in a position that could only have occurred had it been lifted off of the chair and thrown over the chair and in front of it. Does that make sense? In other words, a falling coat will always have the interior of the coat facing the chair. No matter if it's spun around one way or another, the coat would fall down and the inside would be facing the chair. The inside of my coat was actually facing, dare I say, impossibly outward. So why did this happen? How did this happen? I don't think vampires were involved despite the involvement of Salem's Lot. But ultimately, this sounds like a ghost story, as most unexplained encounters like this get chalked up to. Now this is probably the closest experience I've ever had that I could even refer to as a ghost story or a ghost encounter and it was barely even anything. In fact, I've dramatized it in various forms over the years, but it really did happen, and that's what I recall of it. But when we talk about ghosts, what are we really talking about? Have we really accepted 
quote, paranormal experiences as a valid occurrence? First, let me ask you this. Do you even believe in ghosts? Honestly, it has a lot to do with religion. Depending on your particular culture's angle, the concept of the afterlife can mean a lot of different things, and one of those includes ghosts. So then, what is a ghost? I mean, another word for it would be spirit. Some people might say it's an energy, or when you talk about people, we kind of identify ourselves as an entity, and we have a physical self and whatever this entity is. So maybe it's us, but in a different form. There really is no answer. There's your answer. And we could get into a philosophical debate about whether or not something is driving our bodies aside from pure biology. But there seems to be a pervasive notion that if we are not our brains, then there's some other intangible thing inside of us that makes us who we are when we're alive. And by this logic, whatever this thing is might still exist after we biologically cease functioning. So why did we start believing in ghosts in the first place? Well, look, I'm no historian, but I think on a very simple level, we as people look for any way possible to extend the memory of our existences on this mortal plane because we simply don't know. So to combat our existential fear of being alone in the universe with no purpose, we can use the afterlife as some kind of perpetual finish line that we can look forward to. And the comfort of knowing that our loved ones are somewhere else, if not physically with us, and the prospect of being reunited with them seems to drive the idea home as viable. But instead of venturing into centuries of theological debate and belief on higher powers, I really want to focus on some of the strange manifestations of these beliefs as they've surfaced in our stories and the fiction that's been weaved into popular logic. We all know a few ghost stories, or at least enough about ghosts to know the rules. But have you ever really asked yourself what we really know? The answer is truthfully, nothing at all. We literally know nothing about what we call ghosts. Don't believe me? Follow along and you'll see that everything we think we know dissolves almost as fast as the apparitions themselves. What helps is that if you imagine trying to explain the concepts of spirits or ghosts to an intelligent alien race, you'll have to address some interesting issues. First of all, logically speaking, if we as a species have been creating ghosts since throughout our evolution and progression, can you imagine just how many of these entities populate the spiritual realm? That's every person who's ever lived and died. The square footage of the planet, including the oceans, is not enough to hold that population. I imagine that at this point in human history, if we stacked every ghost like sardines along the surface, and maybe even inside our planet, it would increase the size to match something like Jupiter. So just addressing this is mind-boggling, especially since we consider ghosts only to inhabit certain places or to haunt certain areas. Speaking of haunting, how much sense does haunting even make? If a ghost sticks to a certain location, let's say a house for example, they're presumably tied to the layout and environment in which they lived and will continue to interact with it for eternity. But let's say the house is torn down. What then? Do they just float in space where the house was? If a water park was built in the place of a house, are we going to find the ghost moaning down the water slides? The afterlife seems like the most overcrowded and uninhabitable place and yet we treat it like some alternate version of our own reality where ghosts are kind of just existing and not in some eternal mosh pit with billions and billions of others. Speaking of others, why is it that we are so selective about the types of ghosts we see and of which periods they come from? In addition to the common 
quote, period ghosts we see with whom we can relate somewhat to the lives they lived. What about early man and the uncivilized people that died over the course of time? We seem stuck to the fact that ghosts are only spirits that have a reasonable connection to our life or time. When's the last time you saw a caveman ghost? I'm sure there's plenty of unhappy spirits from that era that are bitter that they starved to death or got eaten by some prehistoric animal. Speaking of bitterness, it also seems to be the standard that ghosts are around because of unresolved business. So, while this may address the population issue with the notion that ghosts stay in a realm in between life and death because they don't want to move on, their motives are questionable. Whether a ghost wants justice for their wrongful death, or they're just mean and want to scare and punish people, the implication that they can be motivated in the afterlife also implies that they can be appeased. If they still have the fluidity of thought to want to feel happy instead of sad, and are capable of these emotions, it stands to reason that they are still rational beings to an extent. And so if they feel emotions as they seem to, and they can be triggered by our actions, then again it stands to reason that we could theoretically work with spirits the way that therapists and psychologists do to get to the heart of their pain and grief, despite the lack of a physical heart. Because in truth, we characterize many ghosts really to be criminals in the way that they interact with the living whether it's causing massive disturbance all the way to causing the deaths of the living. Along this line of thought, if ghosts are sticking around to finish business with or to motivate or punish us, and they are capable of rational thought and decision making, why all the sneaking around? Why the shock and scare factor? Why not just come out and confront us in a way that doesn't involve all the clandestine spiritual mumbo jumbo? Ouija boards? seances? If they can appear whenever and wherever, wouldn't that be a better use of that technology that they have? Speaking of technology, I shouldn't neglect to touch on something more recent in our tongue-in-cheek pursuit of knowledge of the afterlife. I'm talking about something that I made a few short films about back in film school, and that's the notion of ghost hunting. Ghost hunters are a serious lot. People so serious about finding ghosts that their quest to make Race Stance and Egon Spengler eternally proud with their tenacity and persistence seems to somehow excuse the lack of any logically sound scientific methods. If you've never seen such a show, it typically surrounds a small team of people armed with all variety of cameras, environmental scanners, and digital measurement, and recording tools. They often travel to places that are reportedly haunted, houses, cemeteries, etc. Or places that provide for a Blair Witch type found footage horror movie fodder, like abandoned sanitariums and the sort. These shows, which usually follow predictable patterns of establishing the lore, interviewing the witnesses, and then finally investigating the site, ultimately result in 30 minutes or so of melodramatic night vision chases in the dark and less than objective interpretations of noises captured on grainy digital recorders. The drama of reality TV and the horror of the Blair Witch kind of genre has made this a somewhat successful recipe for television. However, once you get past the excitement of, what was that noise? And, did you see that? The end product usually yields us no more evidence than when they started. Similar to searches for Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and other cryptozoological monsters, the search for ghosts is on equally shaky footing when it comes to the methods and technology employed in the research. To put it simply, how do you measure something that in the first place you cannot even prove exists? Everything from infrared to EMF, thermal, night vision, to good old-fashioned digital recorders, how do they relate to the study of something we literally have zero evidence on? To piggyback on another topic I love, it's like designing and building a time machine 
without knowing how to travel back in time in the first place. It's nonsensical. From a narrative perspective, I enjoy picking genre tropes and stereotypes and then seeing what happens when you flip them or even make them conflict. It makes for good storytelling. For example, My Lampoon of Ghost Hunting came in two short films, ostensibly produced as several episodes of a ghost hunting show. Entitled Ghost Ventures, this experiment in handheld found footage horror followed the popular commercial format of existing similar shows and even had a team of naively confident, quote, investigators running around in the dark chasing ghosts with cameras and meaningless electronic knickknacks. The hook is, the hook was that, as the director, I wanted our bumbling team to actually encounter ghosts. That was accomplished using some purposeful, this was accomplished using some purposefully used special effects. In 2010, I hadn't seen a show to actually graduate the idea to this level, but I thought it could be fun to do and amusing to watch. When I was a teacher, my students often got a kick out of them when I screened them around Halloween, selling it to them as an actual show that I worked on. I even doubled down and weaved in a found footage narrative into the second episode that made it seem like production had to stop because of a quote, paranormal incident caught and shown on tape. But I digress. The satire of the paranormal investigation realm invites much discussion because of its use or misuse of what are perceived as proper research techniques and tools. For example, hearkening back to Egon Spengler's awesome, lighted, handheld ghost detection device in Ghostbusters, there seems to be a prevailing thought that ghosts exist in the electromagnetic spectrum and thus can be measured with an EMF detector. But why? Where's the researched confirmation that this is a measurement? It's like saying you can prove a UFO flew over your house by testing the air quality. Sure, you can generate numbers and data, but in relation to what? Another idea is the age-old temperature change in the presence of ghosts, something more or less cemented by The Sixth Sense and other similar films. But if that's the case, why in the world are ghost hunters using things like thermal imaging to capture heat signatures in abandoned places to prove they caught a ghost on tape? Are we to assume that they're warm-blooded and produce such an image? How much sense does that make? The analysis of audio recordings that purportedly capture ghosts speaking is probably the most mind-boggling of all. While it sticks to the unsubstantiated idea that ghosts live in a spectrum we can access and measure, it's somehow giving scientific validation to what essentially amounts to a Rorschach test in audio form. In the same way we can look at clouds and find clear shapes, or find faces in abstract patterns, you can literally hear anything you want in a static recording. Ultimately, the ghost question relies on your susceptibility to interpretation, and this also speaks to the religious implications of the conversation. It's without judgment or reservation that I say there's no ghost of a chance that I subscribe to much of the lore, but this in no way passes judgment or condemns anyone that does. That's the beauty of it all, the ability to believe what you want and use that belief in your work, creative or otherwise. So if this is the first time you're hearing me talk about this or you're unfamiliar with some of the things I've done or written. You might be wondering, why are you such a critic of ghosts? Why do you hate ghosts and the paranormal so much? Well, the opposite couldn't be more true. I'm a huge fan of this particular genre of horror, which even kind of goes into science fiction, because as you notice, the way I talk about this really tries to weave in science, because I'm really trying to find reason in what we know as paranormal experiences and how we define ghosts. Because I want it to make sense. I want to understand it. But as in a lot of philosophical discussions, the only way to really understand a concept is to break it down as much as possible until you have the barest essentials that ultimately can be the truth. 
And so there is that scientific component of refuting it until you can't refute it anymore. Prove it wrong instead of trying to prove it right. And so when I talk about ghosts, I try and find a logical thread through all of these rules that somehow we've just come to accept as fact. In The Winter Hollow, I didn't quite follow a formula for the paranormal or ghosts, but I did include elements that are very familiar to those who watch horror movies or to those who are familiar with ghost stories, which is mostly all of us. In the sense that the ghost or that element of The Winter Hollow was more of a harbinger of something to come, a warning. And to give you a little bit of background, the story surrounds a girl who goes through a traumatic experience of surviving a school shooting. And her survival actually left her with a kind of impairment of memory of the event because of the damage done. So she, in a somewhat stereotypical fashion, or something that is familiar in this genre, begins to have a perception or see things that she cannot distinguish from reality, that have something to do with this horrible event that happened to her. And part of that is a vision of an apparition of a ghostly little girl. And while I don't want to spoil too much of it, I will tell you the origin of this vision came from a dream. And I've said this before, but a lot of things I write about came from a dream. Not everything, but a lot of them start with a vision that I had in a dream and I build off of that. And uh, one such dream I had in the early 2000s, uh, maybe around 2005 or 6 was a vision of this girl, young girl, maybe four or five years old, in kind of a baby doll dress. And the scary part was that she had a life-size photograph of a face wrapped around her head like a mask. It was wrapped around with packaging tape. It was a pretty terrifying vision in the dream, but it was one that I was aware of. I wasn't afraid of it. It was just, I saw it as a terrifying vision didn't really mean anything and her environment was even more so kind of disturbing she was in kind of a seated position on the ground and she was held up by lots of barbed wire that came from all directions so if you think of hellraiser with the chains and the hooks kind of coming out of the shadows and almost hooking into someone and pulling them up that's almost the setup of these barbed wires and then there's this girl who i mean if you want to call out the references this girl looks like anyone from the twins in the shining to the little girls doing jump rope in nightmare on elm street it's uh, it's kind of that image that dichotomy of uh, sweet and innocent but also representing evil and death if you want to dig into it that way in any case that mask of someone's face a girl's face over her face was this image that i hadn't quite seen before and wrapped around in tape and hiding something horrific behind the mask was she mutilated i don't know her arms were hoisted up by the barbed wire in a way that was almost uh, kind of alluding to a crucifixion, but not really. It was a pretty disturbing image in my dream, and I decided to incorporate that into the Winter Hollow as this image, and I built the story around the image of this little girl. Now, following some of the rules of the paranormal, I did make this apparition be something that blurred the line between life and death, but also between reality and unreality. But that's all I can really tell you without digging too much into the plot. The appearance of this character, if you want to call her that, in the Winter Hollow, seems to follow some of those rules in some respects, but the rest of the story really diverges into something on its own because of the nature of the plot. So if that wasn't awkward or confusing enough, I can only say, please go read the book. A couple of years ago, I wrote a short story called Passenger. 
I chose to revisit a theme that I've written about in a couple other stories and even my novel Cygnus. Or I shouldn't say theme. I should say there's a crucial element to the story that I'm revisiting that I just can't stop writing about or including, which is Ortega Highway 74, which is a road in Southern California that I once upon a time lived off of for a three-month period. Now this may sound kind of odd, but if you know my history, you know that for three months I tried tiny living. And in that three months, I lived in essentially a national forest off of this winding forest mountain road in Southern California. And it was a terrifying thing to drive on at times because it's this almost secluded and crazy stretch of highway that a lot of people in Southern California are very aware about for various reasons, but mostly for its two contrasting properties. One, that it's really, really scenic and it's beautiful and it's very long and it connects a part of Southern Orange County through the mountains uh, to Lake Elsinore and Murrieta and Temecula and wine country and so on. But it's one area in this particular part of Southern California that is very unique to the other ones. In any case, the, the beauty is undeniable, but it's also extremely, extremely dangerous. And so if you drive on it, it's a two-lane highway. There are two types of drivers on it, those people who have driven it before and who know it very well, and those who are very unfamiliar with it and tend to drive a little bit slower. And this strange dichotomy with the driver population there causes a lot of problems at the very least being in consideration for others and kind of this riding other people from behind or perhaps cutting them off all the way to accidents because of the dangerous driving. In any case, I like to write about Ortega Highway 74 because for those three months, every morning, I would get up at 3 a.m. and I would prepare for work and go to work early. This is when I was a teacher and I would have to account for the drive time from where I lived, which was a 33 mile drive all the way back into Orange County. And so as not to get trapped in the rush hour traffic, I would leave before the sun came up. And the imagery that I would see driving on this darkened road every morning and even sometimes at night was enough to inspire me to write several stories based on my thoughts going through this road. So of course, of the different themes I have chosen, ghosts was clearly an obvious one. And this had to do with the fact that not only is it a very haunting drive and can appear very, very creepy when you're driving on it, but the history of accidents and misadventures on this road just kind of preceded anybody's claim to anything historical about the road, the fact that there were so many accidents. And there was one in particular during that three-month period that I lived there that I heard about, which was a little bit unnerving to think about as I drove along the road in the dark before the sun came up with mist floating along the edges and a ravine to the right of me or to the left of me that I could instantly fall in and not be found. And this story was about a car that went off the road and tumbled over and over and over again. But the driver survived. And the driver, after the car rolled over many times, was able to get out of the vehicle and find his way back to the road. Now, mind you, at this point in the drive where this happened, he was about a few miles away from civilization because since the road is so isolated, there's not a lot of points where you can make contact with people. 
except other drivers. And so this young man made it to the road and it's very late at night. And the sad part of the story, which is sadder than the actual accident itself, is that he was hit by a car and did not survive this hit. And an even sadder part is that the driver uh, then proceeded to leave the scene. It was a hit and run, and this young man was killed. And so this happened while I lived there. I did not witness anything of the accident except some, uh, except some of the aftermath of evidence that there was an accident somewhere. But for, but for a couple weeks after that, while the driver was still at large and they were looking for this suspect who would be charged with the hit and run, it was a terrifying thought to think of the horror of that situation and ultimately the sadness of it. And it got me thinking of, of course, ghosts and mortality, which is why I wrote Passenger. And I wanted to take it in a direction that was familiar and yet somewhat a twist on the genre. And so my thought process was that there have been probably quite a lot of these types of accidents on this particular highway because it's that dangerous and since its inception has probably taken the lives of many people. And if we follow the kind of traditional lore of ghosts and spirits, that this type of demise would lead to something in the realm of a haunting because of the unresolved nature of the death of the person on the road or on this particular path so that they probably wouldn't be aware of the fact that it even happened. So what if they stayed wandering on this road completely unaware that they're dead because it was such a shock to them and it came out of nowhere, literally. And so I took that notion and ran with it in Passenger and wrote in my own myth about the ghosts that potentially haunt this highway. I tried to take some of what I consider to be stereotypes and tropes when it comes to ghosts and weave them into something that has a twist to it. Some comments that I've received from it acknowledge the fact that, yeah, it's a, it's a ghost story, but with a unique twist. And I'll take that, because really, creativity and originality are two completely different things. While a lot of ideas may not be original anymore, if you're creative, you can take a couple existing ideas and put them together in a way that people haven't seen or heard before, which kind of makes them new. So if you haven't read Passenger, I invite you to check it out again. I play on the knowledge that we seem to have and agree on when it comes to this particular genre and use that in a way that can be entertaining but also thought-provoking because I really do try and connect the dots and have it so that anything that I put into a story makes sense and has a basis in truth or something that can at least be seen as logical and believable. So no. I am not a critic of ghosts, I don't hate the paranormal, and despite the fact that it seems like I'm shooting down ghost hunting and all of our perceived pop culture comprehension of the paranormal, I'm really not. I really am a fan, and again, there's that part of me that wants to validate everything that we think we know with ideas that make sense. So I hope you're listening to this somewhere dark and quiet so that in your own way you can listen for a knock at your door or a voice in the hall or a shadow of movement behind you. You should know I'm rooting for you. Don't be scared. I won't say there's nothing to fear, but I will say that being scared largely is a choice. Just remember all the rules I've covered here as you open that door to see if there was actually someone there only to encounter what was there all along. Contradictions. Contradictions.